think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. I'm really excited because we have Tony with us today. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Lori. Thanks for having me. Well, until forced to retire due to illness, Tony Bernard spent 22 years as a university law professor. She had a long-standing Buddhist practice and was active in the life of her community. Forced to learn to live a new life, Tony embarked on the difficult journey of writing a book called How to Be Sick, a Buddhist-inspired guide for the chronically ill and their caregivers. She lives in Davis, California with her husband named Tony and her hound dog named Rusty. So tell us a little bit, um, how did you get sick? Well, it was 2001, and my husband and I took a much-anticipated trip to Paris. I live in California, and we're not world travelers, so this was very special. And I had rented a studio apartment for us to stay in for three weeks. We were going to immerse ourselves in Parisian life. And the second day there, I felt sick. And at first I thought it might just be jet lag. So I just waited it out, but by the third day, it was clear I had some kind of infection because I had a fever and a sore throat. Really, all of the um, symptoms of an acute flu, which is what they thought it was at first. So um, that's how I got sick, and we thought, well, okay, you know, we'll have two and a half weeks left in Paris, and then it became two weeks, and then um, the days counted down, and I just didn't get better. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, my husband will go out, um, wander around, and maybe go to a museum. It was not fun for him, and he would come back at noon and check on me, hoping I'd be a bit better, and it just didn't happen. So um, that was the beginning. That acute viral infection set off some reaction in my body that they're really not sure. There are several theories, but no definitive diagnosis um, as to why I've never recovered my health from that infection. So what are your signs and symptoms that you have right now? Well... It's as if I have the flu 24-7 without some of the, a couple of the acute symptoms, really the fever, the fever, sore throat, that I don't have. But I have all the other symptoms of the flu, uh, achy muscles and um, extreme fatigue and uh, headaches and uh, dizziness. So it's a, I, I feel like I have the flu, and I've felt that way for nine and a half years. Did they figure out what kind of virus it was? No, 
they've never they never figured out. We um, you know we actually saw a doctor in Paris, and she said, well, this is she called it the grip, <laughs> the flu, and the doctors here didn't either, and they don't actually think that that original virus is what's causing the problem now. They feel they think that it has set off some kind of reaction in my body, one possibility being that my immune system never returned to normal. You know, when you get sick, your immune system turns on and it it, um, uh, secretes all these chemicals and fights the virus and the bacteria, and that's really why you feel sick. It's kind of the side effect of your immune system doing what it's supposed to be doing. And so one possibility is that mine just never turned off. And so it is in this constant low-grade war against, in effect, the phantom virus. That's one possibility. So your body is constantly fighting and you just feel tired all the time. Yeah, I feel it's, um, it's more than tired because it's also that the, the sickness of the flu. So it's um, uh, tired is part of it, but it's also, I describe it as a sickly fatigue, the kind of fatigue you feel when you have an an acute flu, yeah. So you wrote the book, How to Be Sick. What prompted you to, you know, this this book is great. It's got some lot of useful information. I love the quotes. What, What prompted you to, you know, take on this big endeavor? Well, uh, it took a while. I've been sick for nine and a half years. And I, um, b- before I got sick, I had a um, Buddhist practice going. There is a meditation center not too far from Davis in Marin County, and I would go there and sometimes do meditation retreats. And, so, and I love to read in Buddhist books. And so I would say that I had a really established practice at the time I got sick. Well, when I got sick, that all all went just out the door because the first three or four years, you know, I really was in a state of shock and disbelief. You can't, you know, it's okay to get sick, but then you expect to get better and everybody else expects you to get better. And it's one of the difficulties that people with chronic illness or chronic conditions face is that in the regular population, people accept illness, but just on the short term. They expect you to get a treatment and then get better. So those first few years were very, very difficult. I kind of felt like a failed Buddhist, really. But... Gradually, I began to see that this is, for now, the way my life is. It doesn't mean that I don't still um, seek out treatments that might help. I do. So I haven't given up in any way. But I have, I came to see that I needed to start where I was and where I, where I am and was when I started to write the book is housebound, pretty much. Sometimes I can go out for an hour or two, and bedbound a lot of the time. And I thought, well, 
maybe some of these Buddhist practices that I learned before I got sick could help me now. And I kind of brought them back into my life. And some of them are not, these are not anything very esoteric. They're practices that are really shared by all religious and humanitarian traditions, whether it be cultivating compassion toward your sick body and loving kindness, that kind of thing. And so I began to use these practices, and after a couple years, I just wanted to write about it. I wanted to help others. Can you explain some of the practices? Sure. Um, I actually did a count (laughs) a, a couple weeks ago, and there's over two dozen practices. Some of them, most of them are Buddhist in origin. Some of them I made up. Um, A couple come from the work of a woman named Byron Katie, who some of your listeners may know about. Um, And they, there's such a range. Some of them are uh, focused on cultivating um, mental states that are more soothing and kind to yourself than what can often happen when you're sick, which is falling into states of anger and frustration and this is not fair. There are practices for developing compassion. I've had a couple people write to me about the compassion practices saying that they've been so helpful, like coming up with a phrase of your own that you can direct at your body in the kindest of ways. I sometimes say, my sweet body working so hard to support me. I'll just repeat that phrase, and it has the most calming effect. One person wrote to me and said, when I started to use that phrase, I realized I had not forgiven myself for getting sick. And for the first time, I realized this was not a personal failing on my part. This is just what happened in my life. So um, there are compassion practices, and there are loving kindness practices and equanimity practices, and some of them are directed at ourselves, but many of them are to help us learn to forgive and understand other people when they let us down. I lost many of my friends when I got sick. A lot of people don't hang around. And felt I felt very bitter and angry about that for many years. And now I've come to accept that there are many reasons why people may not be in touch. They may have problems of their own. They have. They may be concerned they tire me out. And so this is a kind of equanimity practice where you say, well, this is the way things are, and there's no reason to blame people. All that does is make my suffering worse. One of the things you talk about in the book is envy. And I like how you brought that up because you know, here your body's failing you, it's not working how you want, and it it makes you change a lot of your lifestyle habits. 
Can you talk a little bit about how you come to grips with that? Yeah. Um, uh, I had a lot of trouble with envy, and I should also say that I still do. I mean, this is not... I didn't write this book and put it out there in the world, and that's it for me. I'm... <laughs> I'm You're cured. <laughs> yeah, far from it. Um, I had to work with envy this Thanksgiving when we had... We don't usually have people over, but for various reasons, we had 12 people for Thanksgiving dinner. They were here for eight hours or so, and I was only able to visit for one of them. And those other seven hours, I'm in my bedroom listening to the sounds of people laughing and having a good time. And envy, <laughs> envy arises. You know, it's such a, a poisonous in the sense that all it does is add mental suffering to our physical suffering. And so I talked about developing these more gentle mind states like compassion and loving kindness. Well, there's this uh, one in, in Buddhist tradition called mudita, which simply means cultivating or developing joy in the joy of others. So um, that is a practice I've found to be a great um, antidote to envy. And, you know, I had to, it, it didn't come easy. At first it was, it felt kind of uh, fake, like I was just pretending that I was feeling joy listening to others having joy in the living room. But with practice I found that not only do I feel joy in their joy, but it's almost as if I can at times feel they're having joy for me, that they're, they're there for me, even though I can't be there. And so um, that's one of the practices that uh, has been very helpful to me in dealing with envy. Well, you talk quite a bit about meditation, now, do you have to get into a meditation state to get to that point? No. As a matter of fact, um, it's interesting that people, people do associate Buddhism and some other traditions with, with a formal meditation practice where you sit and maybe follow the in and the out breath. And when I got sick, I had a very disciplined twice-a-day meditation practice. And I stopped doing it. I found the bodily discomfort of the flu symptoms to be too difficult for me to sit with. And so uh, there, and I don't want to discourage anyone from trying meditation. As a matter of fact, Many people, I know from looking online at what people say help when they have physical difficulties, many people say meditation was very helpful to them. But the practices in the book are actually practices that one does outside of formal meditation. This is not, um, these are just, um, you can do it anytime. So it's not connected to a formal sitting or lying down meditation practice. 
Will you talk a little bit about your your family as well? And interestingly enough, your husband is also named Tony. <laughs> so that might be confusing if somebody's calling the house, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's not confusing to the two of us. Because when we're together, if I say Tony, he knows I mean him. So we, our children are grown and have left the house, and so we don't notice it. But it does come up when people call. Someone says to me, can I speak to Tony? I have to say, well, which one? And sometimes they think you're being smart, you know. <laughs> what do you mean, which one? My, my kids, when they were growing up, said they hated picking up the phone because <laughs> they didn't have a good response. They never came up with a good response to, is Tony there? Do you want my mother or my father? What do you mean? <laughs> so it is interesting that uh, he and I don't notice it, but other people tell us stories about uh, saying, oh, I saw Tony. Well, which one, you know? Yes, he, he is named Tony. So you talked a little bit about in Paris it was difficult. How has he come to accept uh, your situation of not feeling well, and does he apply some of the practices? Yeah, we were, you know, I actually think that what's happened to me has been as difficult uh, for him as it has been for me. And I have to start by saying how blessed I am that he has, that he turned out to be such a wonderful caregiver because that's what he is. There are a lot of people I know about whose partners or spouses did not hang around when they got sick or or developed some kind of condition that limited them physically. So I'm very, very blessed in that way. But it's been extremely difficult for him because he's lost his buddy, his friend out there in the world. We used to go and do everything together. That was just the way our relationship was. And now when he goes out, he goes out alone. If he goes to a wedding, he goes by himself. And so there's not that wonderful sharing that can go on between partners that, you know, oh, look over there. Look what she's wearing. Oh my goodness, doesn't he talk too much? You know, that kind of thing. And so um, a lot of caregivers fall into a group of um, unrecognized heroes, but heroes who often have developed real depression over this change in their life. And I think Tony and I both reached this turning point at around the same time where we said, okay, this is what we've got. Everybody's life has its share of joys and sorrows and difficulties. There's the happy part. There's the difficult part. And this illness is what we've got. And we have to start here. Otherwise, it's like hitting our heads against the wall. And all that does is hurt your head. And so we, we both came to that realization around the same time. And so he really uses the practices in the same way I do because he could be envious of other 
people who's, uh, who get to be out in the world and having fun with their spouses and partners and traveling. And, and so he's had to learn to deal with all of that, too. And he uses mudita and um, he uses compassion practices and equanimity practices where you say equanimity really means um, accepting life as it is with its ups and downs and coming to see that there are some things you can change and some things you can't and trying to make the best life you can with what you have. Well, when I was reading through the book, um, I found that a lot of the principles you share, you don't have to be a Buddhist to appreciate what you're speaking about. I mean, it's it talks a lot about karma and Zen, and it is very peaceful to read because when I was reading your profile, I mean, you were a law professor for 22 years, and to make that dramatic change from being, you know, with high stature in the community or the class and then going to a complete opposite, you know, the anger can just consume you. I mean, I know that I'm getting ready to probably have my fourth transplant. And, you know, I've been living with kidney disease for many years, and sometimes it's just like you're so tired of it, and you just want to go on with your life. Yeah, I'm sure you feel that I have to deal with uh, why me, and this isn't fair, and I, you know, my identity was Professor Bernhard, and suddenly I was <laughs> bedbound Bernhard or something. It's <laughs> like, you know, and especially at a place like a law school where there's this turnaround in students, if I went over there now, no one would know who I was. I mean, my colleagues although there's been a big turnover in, in even the faculty since I left. I don't even know half the faculty anymore. So it's, uh, it was a tremendous change, and that's why I said that the, you know, the first few years, um, I really did fall into alternating states of anger and denial and self-blame at times, despair. And I can imagine how difficult it is for you, Lori, because you, I'm in this situation where it's like the same for me at day after day after day, whereas you have to kind of get yourself up for yet another transplant and deal with, you have to kind of go through those beginnings that I only went through once. Well, yeah, disappointment is, uh, I was called for a transplant in September. It was a perfect match transplant, and there were some things that came up that I didn't get it. But I was actually at the hospital, ready, and so you get this start and stop, and it's disappointment or, you know, an expectation that, you know, didn't, wasn't met. And, you know, sometimes I tell to my husband, like, you know, I just can't have any expectations, but that's part of life having expectations, and that's what gets you up in the morning. But, you, you know, you're, you're devastated when something doesn't work out the way you planned it would work out, especially me being somewhat of a control freak. I mean, I like to know what I'm doing, and you don't often know what you're doing. And you do have to readjust quite a bit, and it's, it, it's, it's very frightening and scary. And, you know, I found other patients are the ones who help me get through this cycle. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, because they understand what you're going through. 
right. you know, there's this kind of invisible world of chronic illness that I didn't even know existed. And um, <laughs> until I entered it, and you know, this these uh, kind of being pushed around by the ups and downs, you it's very hard to, to find that kind of middle middle path where you still are going to work on your health. You're going to be an advocate for yourself and do everything you can, but at the same time, you have to accept that you can't always control the outcome and you can't always control what's going to happen. And that really is, if we could really stay at that place of equanimity, that calm state where we just ride the waves of of the ups and downs without getting all emotionally caught up in it, just being able to accept that sometimes we'll, sometimes what we're looking for is going to work out and sometimes it's not. It's, it's an everyday practice. Well, and it's interesting. Somebody told me that, you know, you just have to enjoy life because nobody's promised tomorrow. And a lot of times you get so focused on what's happening in the future, you forget to enjoy today. And that's something that, you know, I'm guilty of. <laughs> you know, and, and I also have this committee in my head. I don't know if you have this committee in your head. But this committee, and I'm like, you know, I always ask the doctor, am I going to be diagnosed with another chronic illness? Because this committee sometimes goes rampant and tells me, you know, what I should or should not be doing. And, you know, you just have to silence the committee. Well, you know, that's I love that idea of the committee in your head because when I, you know, my basic, the basic approach of the book is, okay, there's the physical suffering of the illness. What can we do to not add mental suffering to that? And mental suffering, I break down into emotions, painful emotions, and then the other stressful thoughts. And those, the stressful thoughts, that's my committee. Those are the, I love that phrase, Lori. Those are the stories we spin about our lives. And then we talk ourselves into the truthfulness of them and the validity, even though they may have no basis in fact at all. And so, you know, I'll, I'll never get... Uh, there'll never be another donor match for me. Well, you don't know that, right? Right. (laughs) You know, um, uh, I shouldn't have to have another transplant. You know, those are the things that just increase our suffering. And there are several practices in the book that help us uh, kind of, you know, uh, put a pin in those balloons in that committee to help us see that uh, the thoughts, the stories we spin about our lives um, very often have no basis in fact. And, uh, but because we believe them, we suffer. There's um, a woman named Byron Katie, and there's a chapter in the book devoted 
to her method. It's called inquiry, where she shows you how to take a thought, like for me, you know, early in the illness it was, um, you know, nobody cares that I'm sick except my, except Tony, <laughs> you know. I did a lot of poor me stuff. And she has this technique for showing you how to take that thought and work with it until you see the absurdity of it. How do I know that no one cares about me except Tony? You know, I mean, that's not true at all. And if I reach out to people, more often than not, they'll say things like, oh, we just, you know, we didn't want to be in touch because we thought you might not be well enough. And people are wait. a lot of people I've discovered are waiting for me to call them and ask for help. Right. So um, that's just one of the techniques. And then there's another Zen technique called uh, Don't Know Mind, in which you basically suspend judgment until you really check things out. So uh, that's how I deal with my committee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I try not to feed them. <laughs> that's good. That's... Right. But, you know, keeping... Um, recognizing that the things the committee, <laughs> what they're telling you may simply not be true, um, can really be freeing. At least I find it to be really liberating to ask myself as a sort of a question, am I sure? You know, I'll have a doctor's appointment and maybe... The doctor doesn't seem to be that. I don't find the doctor to be tuned in that well to to me. And afterwards, I'll say, well, am I sure? You know, maybe he was just really overbooked that day and wasn't able to give me the time that I needed. I have, There's a, one woman that I've seen, um, and my first appointment with her, I thought, well, I don't see a point in going back. And she's turned out to be a wonderful doctor for me. And I think she was just having a busy day. So, you know, but my committee was saying, <laughs> was making all these judgments. and So just suspending judgment until you really, uh, doesn't mean that, I mean, there are some doctors, yes, you don't want to go back, but... Um, not believing the stories that we spin, not automatically believing them, is just, I find, so helpful. What one piece of advice would you give someone who's just been diagnosed with a chronic illness or has been living with a chronic illness, especially, you know, most of the uh, listeners to this show are people who have chronic kidney disease? Well, I guess I'd say two things, and the first one may be pretty obvious, but the first one is to find a doctor who you can work with and where the rapport is there and where you feel listened to. Um, I just think that's real important. And the second is to recognize that having kidney disease is not a personal failing on your part. This, you know, we live in this culture that worships at the altar of wellness. You'd think from the ads you see on television that no one, you know, all you have to do is take a pill if you do have a problem and you'll be fine. But that's not 
how the, how it is for us in the world. We're in bodies, and bodies get sick, and bodies have physical difficulties, and it's not your fault. Your body is working as hard as it can to support you. And so forgive that body and treat that body with compassion. Well, if anybody would like to learn about how to get Tony Bernard's book, you can go to howtobesick.com. So you're getting a lot of response from the book. And if people want to contact you, can they go to this website and send you an email? Yeah, this is actually a website that my daughter, I would have no idea how to build a website, but I gave her this the materials and she put a really lovely website together. And so it's Yes, it's www.howtobesick.com. And then they'll, up in one place, it'll say contact. And if they, people go there, they have a choice of sending me an email or filling out a form, and it comes into my email. It comes into my inbox. I got an email from a woman in Bristol, England this morning who had read the book. So um, I'm very happy to... Uh, receive feedback from people. Well, it is pretty thrilling. I know that you contacted me because you had read my book, Chronically Happy. And uh, I'll tell you a little secret that the real title of the book is Chronically Happy, Damn It. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) But the publisher at the time didn't really want that particular title. Right. Um, But it really does, you know, you have to have a little sense of anger to get you out there going to be able to conquer an illness because it's it tests the very core of your being. It does, yeah. You can't be indifferent and passive. And that's, you know, when I say that I realize I have to start where I am, that doesn't mean people, people shouldn't mistake that for meaning that I'm just giving up or giving in. Um, it It means that uh, I'm not going to beat myself up because I wake up in the morning and feel sick. I'm going to pursue treatments, but also see what I can do with my life within the limitations that I have. And yes, Lori, I contacted you because yours was one of the books that I bought early on, and um, or at least a few years ago, and it was so helpful to Thank you for your book. Well, it's so helpful when people who are living with the illness share how they live on a daily basis because the goal is really not to suffer with your chronic illness. I mean, you're just trying to be happy, and uh, it's very challenging. But, Tony, um, thank you very much for uh, being on Kidney Talk, and uh, thank you so much for sharing your book with me and the audience and, you know, some great words of wisdom, and I know I've learned a lot. Oh, thanks, Lori. It's been wonderful. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, bye. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 